0: All right, <clears throat> let us pause for a moment to, uh, to say a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, so rule and govern our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, that being ever mindful of the end of all things and your just judgment, we may be stirred up to holiness of living here and dwell with you forever hereafter. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, also, let's see, uh, in the baskets, Christmas sharing is the theme for the, for the time being, so money you put in the baskets will go towards Christmas sharing. Um, envelopes are downstairs, uh, pick up your envelopes, uh, there's a whole bunch of them, so grab your envelopes, let's see, what else? No, no Bible class next week, um, we figure you'll still be uh, napping on the sofa, so that's, uh, we'll, take, we'll take next week off, but then um, uh, we'll pick up again in, in December... At which time, again, I put another plug here for the Catechumenate. Saturday, December 5th. Um, and then Thanksgiving Eve service this week, Wednesday at 7 p.m. So anything else? Uh, Carol, are you, are you here, Carol? Yeah. You need help. You still need help for tomorrow, right? Or are you, how are you doing? Well, we could use some more. More is always better, right? Yeah, okay. Okay. So okay. Okay. And um, families are great. Okay. Families are great. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, anything else? Uh, yeah, Nancy. Mm. If you ordered greens from the afternoon circle, uh, they can be picked up Tuesday or Wednesday. And I think you're here like all day, right? I think so. Yeah, okay. Okay, so anytime, Tuesday or Wednesday, if you order greens. Okay. Anything else? Great. So now, uh, will you indulge me for just a little bit here? Um, I have some things unrelated to... Uh, the story, the, uh, the story of the patriarchs. I was, I was uh, working on my sermon this week, and um, so for those of you who weren't in, in church at 8.30, the gospel lesson for this Sunday is um, from John 18, and it's, the, it's a scene that involves Pilate questioning Jesus, and he asks Jesus, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, um, who told you that? Do you, are you saying this from your own authority, or, from, or did somebody tell you that? Um, and Pilate, if yeah. What am I, a Jew? Um, you know, your people handed, me over to, handed you over to me. What did, what did you do? And Jesus says, um, uh, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting, but my kingdom is not of this world. Um, and then, and then uh, he, he goes on to say that he speaks the truth, that he bear, came for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. Anyway, you'll hear that in church. Um, while I was preparing, I came across this painting, which um, was really, it really was striking to me, and I kept on going back to the painting um, trying to figure out why it was so striking. So I, want, I, want to, and I, have, I found myself saying, man, I wish I could just teach a Bible class about this. Well, here, let's do it. Um, uh, so, um, we have Pilate and Jesus. And I, there's a couple of things to think about. Um, let me just tell you what strikes me at first glance. So, you have Pilate, and clearly Pilate is in the light and Jesus is in the shadow, right? And the light seems to be coming from from um, outside of the building. It's very bright daylight. And it's, it's as though, this is my, my read on it, it's as though Pilate is sort of basking in the light of Rome, right? This, uh, this power, this authority that, that, he, has, uh, that he wields um, on the basis of his position in Rome. He's the prefect of Judea. He, has, um, he, can, he can basically do whatever he wants. And he is here to judge this case. Meanwhile, Jesus uh, is in the shadow just, just barely the hem of his garment is is sort of touched by that light. He's completely in the shadow. His hands are presumably shackled behind his back. Um, and Pilate, you see, is is turning away as he asks this question. You know, what is truth? Right. He's about to go out and talk to the Jews again. Now, what I found really interesting. So, um, what I find really interesting about this about this painting is that is is one, um, how it, how Jesus is portrayed. Right. How would you describe Jesus? Humble, submissive, meek, yeah, right, um, worn out, good, yeah, um, it's hard to see his face, his face, I think, has a little bit of determination in it, um, uh, he's not gonna, he's not, he's not, he's set on his course, um, but, but he's got, he's, he's, worn out was a great description, um, He's, he's enduring, he's bearing what's, what's been set before him. Now, there was an interesting thing uh, that I found out when I was sort of investigating this painting. Um, it's uh, 1890 by this Russian painter, French-Russian painter, um, and it was, it was banned. It was censored in Russia. Now, can you, can you guess why it was censored? 1890. Okay, okay. So one of the, one of the descriptions, so we, we read it, we we're looking at it theologically. Um, for many people, this is, this is a political image, right? If it's, a, if it's a political image, how would you describe it? Pilate is representative of what? Yeah, state power, right? Jesus is representative of what? Yeah, yeah. And a, a principle, an ideology. could be anything, right? could be anything. Um, okay, okay. Now that, that's 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 sort of uh, that was intentional by the, the artist. So this is this I find really interesting. So the artist had that that um, aim in mind when he painted it. He wasn't painting it as a theologian. He was painting it as sort of a, a philosopher, a philosopher uh, politician, kind of a. It was it was that kind of a work. Um, I think it, it actually speaks uh, uh, volumes of truth about what what the scene actually looked like because uh, Jesus is so human right he's so human and in fact that that's the reason why it was banned um, the uh, the The school from which this artist came um were they were big fans of, of painting what they called atheistic Jesuses atheistic christs, so Christs who were not God, Christs who were just human now um, uh and, and so the the you know uh Art, up to that point in time, consisted of really sort of glorified views of Christ, where his divinity was, was magnified. And so it was shocking to see Jesus who looks so human. Now, um, a Jesus who isn't God is a problem for us. But a Jesus who looks so human is, in fact, not a problem. And it's, it's the right way to look at Jesus, because it's precisely in his humanity uh, that, that he meets us, right? That he comes to us. Um, and so, so I think, so it's this felicitous inconsistency, inconsistency this, uh, this sort of, um, it just happens to be that the, the, unintentionally the artist paints a picture which actually shows probably what it looked like, right? Jesus, dejected, outcast, um, powerless um, in the face of, of this authority. Now, you know how the story goes, and this is what I think is the great irony of the, of the, of the painting. If Jesus is just a man, if he's not God... Then the story ends with Jesus dying, right? A, a martyr for an ideology, right? No resurrection. But if Jesus is God, then this painting, or this scene, is just sort of a just sort of um, a small a small fragment of a much larger picture in which that Jesus comes back on the last day to to save us. That Jesus right there, the one who's humble the one who's dejected, the one who, who's bearing on himself the sins of the world, right? Not any other Jesus. Um, so anyway, does that make sense? I, was, I, was, I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. Uh, any questions? Yeah, Carol. In your research, did it say what gallery it is? Y- it did. I can't remember what it said. Maybe. <laughs> Okay. Russian. And I saw one a little different than this. It just struck me. It was the same thing, what what is true. Yeah. It it just portrayed Jesus as so human. Yeah. So beaten down. Right. But still majestic. And and, and to me, um, so we'll talk about this more, especially, and, and this does pertain, by the way. I'll just salvage the Bible study. This does pertain to Jacob wrestling with God, um, because uh, the Jesus who is worn down and um, and dejected is the Jesus that we cling to. Um, it's it's it, it, he because Jesus deigns to, uh, to 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 suffer the shame of the cross. That's why that's why he's our Savior. Okay, and that's why we that's why we hope in him. Okay. So now, let's, uh, we're going we're gonna go to go uh, back to the story in Genesis. But I want to I wanna, uh, do a, a review of last week's Bible study. And we're going to do it using the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know I've made this pitch before. And I haven't, I haven't always given the caveat. I should give this caveat. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite children's books. Um, uh, it's great because it shows how Bible stories, especially these Old Testament stories, relate to the big story of God saving the world, right? And it's great language, great pictures. Um, you'll, I think you'll love the pictures in the story that I'm about to show you. If you get it or if you read it, you have to do one thing, and that is when you read the story of the Last Supper, you have to just say what Jesus said. You can't say what she wrote because it's not quite what Jesus said, okay? So I've given you the caveat. She's, she's wrong on the Lord's Supper, but the rest of it's pretty good, okay? All right. So now uh, the story of Rachel and Leah, okay? This is from Sally Lloyd-Jones, There were once two sisters. The youngest sister was very beautiful, and her name was Rachel. The oldest sister wasn't beautiful at all. Some thought her quite ugly, and her name was Leah. Rachel was the kind of girl who always gets invited to parties and for the team. Everyone loved her, and poor Leah. No one hardly even noticed her. Their cousin Jacob came to stay. He was one of Isaac's sons, and he was on the run. Jacob had stolen and cheated and made some enemies, including his own brother, and now he was hiding. The funny thing is, Jacob, of all people, was the one God gave the special promise to. The same promise he had given his grandfather, Abraham. I will rescue the world through your family. But then God chooses people we least expect, as we'll see. Jacob stayed a long time working for his uncle Laban. One day, Laban said, Jacob, I've decided to pay you for your work. What do you want? A sudden thought struck him. How about one of my daughters? Jacob looked at Rachel And and he looked at Leah. Who would he choose? Of course he chose Rachel. I'll work seven years for free, Jacob said, if I can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked seven years, and at last his wedding day arrived. But that night, Laban played a nasty trick on Jacob. Instead of sending Rachel to marry Jacob, he sent Leah. Now, in those days, they didn't have electricity, so it was dark in their tent, and besides, women wore veils, and you couldn't see their faces properly. So Jacob suspected nothing. The next morning, Jacob woke up and screamed. (laughs) His new wife was lying beside him, but it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Jacob jumped out of bed. Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. But Laban said, work for me another seven years, and then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked for Laban another seven years, and at last, Rachel became his wife. Now Jacob had two wives. But of his two wives, Jacob loved Rachel the best. No one loves me, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when he saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her to love her specially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her, in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest, Someone had chosen her. Someone did love her with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when Leah had a baby boy, she called him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. And that's just what she did. And you'll never guess what job gave Leah. You see, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. One of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince, the prince of heaven, God's son. This prince would love God's people they wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them; he would love them with all of his heart, and they would be beautiful because he loved them, like Leah. It's great. I have that last sentence, especially, they would be beautiful because he loved them. That's Lutheran theology, right there. Luther says that right. God doesn't come into the world uh, looking for something lovable to love, right? He looks, he looks, and makes lovable the things that he, the people that he finds, right? Um, so, anyway, that's a. I think it's a great summary of. The uh, Rachel and Leah story. Is this my coffee? Okay, all right. <laughs> all right, any questions? Good. Fantastic. I mean, you, it's, it's great if you have questions, too. Um, we're going to move on. And uh, there's sort of a bunch of things that happen in the history of Jacob. And we're going sort of, to conclude the Jacob, the, the Jacob story, in a sense, today with the story of Jacob wrestling with God at the River Jabbok, the Jabbok Ford. Um, but there's a couple questions, a couple things we have to um, look at just to sort of set the stage. But before we, uh, before we set the stage, I want to ask you, um, if, to this point in the story, can you see ways, in what ways is uh, Jacob like Jesus? Think about uh, the things that have happened in his life, the things that have happened to him. In what ways is Jacob like Jesus? Okay, yeah, he endured, right? He endured a lot. Very good. Yeah, he suffered. Yeah. Carol, he left, home. he left home. That's fantastic. In fact, he was sent away by his father, empty-handed. And as and we haven't gotten there yet, but when he returns home, do you know what he returns home with? Four, four wives and lots of kids. Twelve kids. Not well. Yeah, twelve. Eleven, thirteen kids at that point, and uh, all kinds of flocks. Right. Riches. He returns home rich with a whole family, a whole nation, right? Kind of like Jesus does. What else? Anything else? Jacob was betrayed by Laban. Yeah, betrayed by one of his closest relatives, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, and he had to fear. I mean, even closer, he he ran away for fear of out of. he, He had to flee for fear of. Uh, the, the persecution of his brothers, or his, of his brother Esau. Good. So now, let me, let's push it just a little bit further. And this is an interesting exercise. This is uh, just, just to sort of put things in perspective. If Jacob is like Jesus, which the, the history of interpretation of Genesis um, asks us to consider that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph are like Jesus in some ways. They, they foreshadow Jesus. If Jacob is like Jesus... Who are Rachel and Leah? Church. Okay. Are they both the church? Mary, you say? Okay. I'd say, I'd say Rebecca's more like Mary. How about the, let's, let's go with that. But how about the church? Which one's the church? Leah. That's great. So draw the lines there. You see that? Um, he, he loved Rachel first, right? Um, and we hear this from Paul, first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world, right? Um and he loved he loved uh he loved Rachel first but he loves Leah as well. Um the and 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 Leah is fruitful. Leah bears bears uh all kinds of children for Jacob um uh, sort of in spite of the fact that uh that he's she's not the origin the first the first choice, right? She's funny looking. And she's funny looking just like we are. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um yeah, I think the I think the parallel is is pretty strong, um, and then and then you also consider this. So just because uh, so Jacob loved Rachel and Leah both to the end, right? He loves them both. He 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 stays with them. Rachel finally bears children because God remembers her. Joseph in particular, whom Jacob loves as well, right? Um, Alex, did you have a question? Nothing. Okay. All right. Yes, Richard. Rachel, can be a- yeah, I think, I think that, that that's a good... It's a, it's a, at least for us, it serves as a good analogy. Um, kind of like how... You know how Paul does this in Galatians. He says, it's, uh, the, the, old, the, the way of the law is like Haggai and Ishmael, and the way of the gospel is like Sarah and Isaac. We can kind of see the same sort of thing here with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Jacob is like Jesus. Rachel is like the Jews. Leah is like the church. Okay? You can you can toy around with that. There are limits. Uh, you run into some limits right away with, with that analogy. But I think it's a helpful analogy for at least understanding um, kind of how this story fits into the big picture of what's going on. Okay. Any questions? Good. All right. So um, there's a couple of things that happen um, before we get to Jacob wrestling with, uh, with God. He, uh, they decide to leave... Paddan Aram, to leave Laban's house. And it's sort, of, it's sort of prompted by the fact that Rachel has a child, Joseph. Um, God, the, the text says, And God remembered Rachel, and she gave birth to a son, and, and she called him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another. Right? And, and he does. Who's the other son of Rachel? Benjamin. Benjamin. Okay, good. So uh, here we're in, uh, in chapter 30 um, where they decide to leave. Now there's this whole big debacle with leaving Padan Aram. And, and if, we had, if we had more time, we'd, we could s- sort of uh, just sort of read the story. But um, uh, Laban doesn't want them to leave. Uh, Jacob kind of tricks Laban out of a lot of his flock. Um, and, when, and Laban is pursuing Jacob as they leave in the night. Three days later, Laban finds out that, that they've left and they catch up to them. Um, and, but God warns Laban, don't say anything good or bad to Jacob. And Laban uh, listens to God. They have this kind of argument. Laban says, you've stolen everything that, that I have, my children, my grandchildren, my flocks, but worst of all, you've stolen my household gods, right? Which is really a bizarre thing. Who had stolen the household gods, do you know? Rachel. Rachel. She had stolen the household gods. Not a great lady. Um, so she had the household gods. They searched the camp. Laban says, we're going to search and we're going to find them. Rachel has them hidden, so they don't find them, and Jacob is livid. How could you, how could you not trust me? Um, just let me go. And Laban says, look, everything that you have is mine, but let's, let's call a truce, okay? <laughs> he just sort of gives up because Laban because Jacob kind of has the upper hand. Um, he gives up. They, uh, st- they take another stone, set it up as a pillar. They, they anoint it, and it's a, it's this covenant between Laban and Jacob. They won't fight with each other anymore. And now Jacob is going to go back to his father's home, right? This is now many, many years later, after he left. Um, take a look at, if you have your Bibles, do you have Bibles in front of you? No? Yes? Some of you do. I will read it to you. How does that sound? Um, In 32, in chapter 32, um, Jacob says a prayer. And he says a prayer because he's afraid of Esau. He knows that 20 years ago when he left, Esau was ready to kill him, right? Uh, So he's fearful. um, And he says this prayer. Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac... O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude." Okay, so that's, that's his prayer at this point. How would you characterize that prayer? What kind of a prayer is that? How does he sound? Repentant. Repentant. <laughs> Afraid. Humble. Humble, right? Yeah, grateful. Um, how, uh, he, he's also re- reminding God, remembering God's promises, right? You said you'd do this for me. Um, I'm not worthy of all the things you've done for me so far. You said you'd do this for me, so please please do it for me. This, I want, I want to just contrast this with... Uh, a prayer that Jacob said earlier in Genesis 28. When he, was, when he had his dream and he saw the, stair, the staircase to heaven and the angels ascending and descending, he said this prayer. Uh, God had just promised to him. He said, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. God gave him that promise then. And Jacob gets up, sets up a pillar, anoints it, and says, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you gave me, I will give a full tenth to you. So what does that prayer sound like? Bargaining, bargaining right? Yes, but that's a good word, bargaining. He's, uh, he's leveraging God, right? Notice, so God is the one who always says, look, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. What does Jacob say here? Yep. If you do this for me, then you'll be my God, right? Um, it, it, it's not a great prayer. I'll, I'll just say that. Um, it's conditional, right? Yeah, and he, he doesn't sort of acknowledge that everything that he's going to receive is, is from God. So there's this change that happens, and we see this. this the, the life of Jacob, if you were going to um, understand the life of Jacob altogether, it's, one of, uh, it's a great big transition, um, remember, he's a model of faith, not of virtue. Um, but even his faith uh, is is being formed, right? And and the way it's being formed over the course of his life is his sense of you know uh, independence, his sense of self sufficiency is being taken away, right? So now that now he's at this point where um, he has nothing before him except for Esau, who probably wants to kill him, right, and take away all of everything that he has. And he, he finds himself um, learning, again, just how much he needs God, right? And so that, that, that gives us the character of his prayer. All right. Everybody good? Let's take a look at the... So, so here's what happens then. Um, uh, he sends all kinds of gifts to Esau. In fact, if you, there, there's some, some speculation that he was really strategic in sending these gifts. So he sends five different groups of animals to Esau... Um, as this seemingly, as this seeming display of uh, generosity, right, of charity. Um, and he tells, he tells Esau, look, I've got nothing. I'm not going to steal anything from you this time. I've got plenty of my own stuff. Um, look, at, look at, look at, look at, here you could have some of it. But he sends five, five different groups of animals. Um, and there's this interesting theory that he did that so that um, Esau would be, you know, sort of overwhelmed with all of this other stuff going on. So if he was going to uh, attack Jacob, you know, ambush him, he's got all these animals running around, and he's got all these extra people. Um, and they came, you know, one right after the other. So each time they had to re- sort of set up their ambush. As an interesting theory. But, uh, and, and it fits in the character of Jacob, doesn't it? To be conniving, right? To, to, be, uh, to be planning. So he sends those uh, to Esau, and Esau's coming with 400 men, um, And Jacob doesn't know what's going to happen. He sends his family across the river. And for some reason, Jacob goes back to the other side of the river, the the river Jabbok, or the ford of the Jabbok, yep. And uh, now, this is a very strange story. And and as evidence of the fact that it's so strange. I wanted to read to you this quotation from Martin Luther. Uh, This is the first thing Luther says in his commentary, in his lectures on Genesis. This is the first thing he says about this story. It's at the bottom of the first page there. This passage is regarded by all as among the most obscure passages of the Old Testament. Nor is this strange, because it deals with that sublime temptation in which the patriarch Jacob had to fight, not with flesh and blood or with the devil, but against God himself. But that is a horrible battle when God himself fights and in a hostile fashion opposes his opponent as though on the point of taking away life. He who wishes to stand and conquer in the struggle must certainly be a holy man and a true Christian. Accordingly, this story is obscure because the magnitude of its subject matter and because of, its, because of its obscurity, all other interpreters pass it by. It would also be permissible for us to pass it by, but we shall still say what we can. So he says, "You can skip it if you want," which is I, we're not going to skip it, but um, it's a difficult story. So listen to the story, and um, as you listen to it, here's what you need to think about: um, Why is it so obscure? What are the, uh, as usual, what are the strange things that happen, and why is it difficult to understand? Um, Why is it difficult to understand? Okay, Genesis 32. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, he had 11 children at that time, okay, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Okay. So, what's, uh, why is this a, an obscure text, an obscure story? What's difficult about it? It was easy? It starts with, uh, he's wrestling with him. Yeah, right? So, he, he, uh, it's, so um, it's nighttime, and uh, it's, it appears to him that there's a man that he's wrestling with. But by the end, Jacob says basically explicitly, I, I've seen God face-to-face, and I didn't die, right? Alyssa? Um, you don't know why. Usually there's a re- reason that you start wrestling with someone. Yep. I have no idea what it is. I mean, originally he thought it was a man, so why would he just randomly start wrestling? That's right, yeah. What's the point of the wrestling match? Um, it's a good question, right? What's the point? Uh, what do you suppose... Consider that question for a minute. What is the point of the wrestling match? Knowing that it's God who comes and wrestles with Jacob, what is the point? Okay, so his name changes. Um, and that signals... The, the, the change of his name signals a change in Jacob's character, right? So when, the, the, when God... When the messenger of God, God himself, says, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. Do you remember what Jacob's name means? Cheater, Cheater. crooked, right? So when he says, my name is Jacob, it's kind of like a confession of sin, right? Um, to say that to God, look, I'm, a, <laughs> yeah, I'm Jacob. Um, and, but God gives him a new name, um, Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Okay, what's the, what's the point? Yeah, Richard. Really yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, right, so yeah, God has, <laughs> um, so, so for, for some reason, and we don't know why, for some reason, Jacob is strong enough, we know that he's strong, remember he lifted that stone off the mouth of the well, but he's strong enough to prevail against this manifestation of God um, until God decides to poke him in the hip, right, um, so, so what's the point? Why are they wrestling? Why is God wrestling with Jacob? How's that? Um, you know, because uh, Jacob um, he had so, he had such a rich richness, and he was a master of his uh, yeah of his kind of uh, right. empire. More. right. So great. So so look at it this way. Um, Jacob has. Through his life, had all of these obstacles, right? He got the blessing, but then he was sent away. Not Esau was the de facto heir of the of Isaac's household. He chose his wife, but he was cheated, um, and he wasn't paid fair wages for his work. And yet, yet by his manipulations, by his conniving, he's come away with all of this wealth, with enough people to to start a nation, right? Um, he, and he's he's sort of it, to, hit, it, to him it would be tempting to consider himself the master of his of his own fate, right? So there's one there's one obstacle left, right? If he's striven with man and overcome. Who's left? God, right? Now, um, so what is it that God wants from Jacob in this wrestling match? Make it more penitent. with his prayer before he 's seen faith as almost conditional, like if I do something for you, you can do it for me, but with this, it makes it changes his attitude towards it sure sure, um, so it, so penitence is, is one is one part of it um, in the, in the, based on what happens in the story what, what, at what point does the story turn? What is the turning point of the story, the center of the story what 's that the at the break of day um, Jacob's, Jacob, they're they're in this in this uh, deadlock, and Jacob says, "What? Bless me, Bless me. Bless right? Um, I think that I think that's the point of the wrestling match, right? God presents himself as an obstacle to Jacob, so that Jacob will insist on God's blessing, right? Um, so that Jacob will be forced to look God in the face as as apparently his enemy." And say, no, you're not my enemy. You're the one who blesses me. Right? Because you've promised. Um, and that that for us, um, I think, is, is crucial in our lives. Um, this happens all the time. Um, you know, uh, we, we perceive God to be our enemy. Right? Why me? Uh, why have you done this to me? Why have you, you know, wh- why is this happening? And we know that God is the agent. Right? God is the one who is nothing happens apart from, God's, apart from God's will, right? And so we say, well, how can, you, how can you be opposing me this way when you've promised to bless me? Um, and what God is asking of us, as he does here with Jacob, is for us to insist on his blessing, to hold him to his word, right? I want to think about um, some other Bible stories that relate. So um, can you think of other times in the Bible where God himself appears as an obstacle to the to the people he's given promises to. In the Garden of Eden, how's that? Wait, wait, maybe when he when he stands with the when he sends his angel with 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 flaming swords, right, preventing preventing his people from returning to paradise, right? Good. Okay. So so if we if if God wanted us to have, you know, if God wanted us to have this paradise that He promised, why? Do we have to? Why do we have to endure in this life apart from paradise? When he sends uh, the, the kingdom of Israel into exile, he, presents, he sends the kings to take over Israel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And throughout the so throughout the course of Israel's history, God is regularly enlisting foreign nations to attack his people. Okay. Um, there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel 22. Uh, and I'll, I'll read it to you here. It's really, um, it kind of it sums up God's attitude towards this, this, this sort of uh, temptation, this sort of affliction um, that, that, that he draws his people through. So, uh, Ezekiel 22, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, Son of man, say to her, that is to, to Zion, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey. This is brutal. Uh, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Ezekiel is like this, by the way. If you, <laughs> if you read through Ezekiel, it's really rough stuff. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy. They have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Listen to that again. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So God, in his in His righteous judgment, knew that he uh, was going to bring wrath on these people. And he sought among them someone to build up the wall and stand in the breach to... To, to defend them. And there was, I mean, among the priests, among the prophets, there were, only, there were only extortionists and false prophets, liars, right? There was nobody. This was a bad time in, in, the, in the time of Israel. But this is, this is a, you know, a description of how God opposes his people, right? To, de, to destroy them. Um, but what does, he do? what does he do? Where's the mercy in that? He looks for someone to stand in the way, right? And finally, that person is Jesus, but... Until Jesus, uh, we need all of these. We need all of these other men, these other these other folks, to stand in the way, um, and to and to insist on God's promise. Uh, can you think? Okay, so backing up now, can you think of other stories? There's a couple other stories that are that are strange, like this one, in which God comes and personally opposes uh, somebody. When he sent the Israelites for forty years to wander before they, they were able to see the promised land. Yeah, right. So he had given them this promise and then he said, hang on, (laughs) let's walk around in the desert for 40 years. Good, okay. uh, Dennett. So Abraham and Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So Abraham was standing in the breach before God. Now, um, there was found no righteous man in, in Sodom and Gomorrah because Lot and his family were pulled out and so God... God executed his judgment. How about, how about uh, Abraham and Isaac, right? God's word to Abraham, sacrifice your son. Doesn't that sound like opposition um, to, the, to the promises that he's given? Do you remember the story? This is an, an obscure story. It takes up just a couple of verses. Um, before, So Moses leaves Egypt, meets his wife. God comes in th- the burning bush, right? Says, go back to Egypt. Aaron's going to help him. And on the way back to Egypt, do you know what happens? Exodus 4. This is crazy. This is, I mean, you should know this is in here. This is in here. Um, uh, let's see. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 4:21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Verse 24, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Right? Now, that one, that one is more obscure than Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, but... Uh, Notice how God opposes Moses. That is strange, isn't it? God, sh- God sends Moses to Egypt, and then on the way, he meets him and tries to kill him. Um, and it's, it's through the faithfulness of his wife uh, that Moses is spared. Moses is spared. Um, sort of, and, and I mean, if, if it's difficult to interpret, but here's one possibility, right? So um, Moses' son evidently hadn't been circumcised. Moses wasn't, Uh, wasn't faithful to the covenant that God had given him. Um, And his wife, just like Rebecca, right, and just like Hannah and Bathsheba, says, look, this is is how things have to be. Otherwise, you're going to die. So (laughs) let's get this right, okay? Um, There is another story um, that that, that this rings for me, uh, reminds me of, and that's in uh, the New Testament. When, you remember, and this is interesting because it's Jesus himself. Um, the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. Do you remember this? Um, she comes to Jesus and she says, Would you, would you heal my daughter? And what does Jesus say to her? Yeah, it is not right that the, that the scraps be given to the dogs, right? The scraps that belong to the children. What does she say? Even, even a crumb. Even a crumb is good enough for me, right? And Jesus says, look at, look at that faith. Uh, your, your, your child is made well, right? So, Jesus, in his words to this woman, opposes her, um, and she insists on his blessing. She insists on the promise. And that's even more remarkable because she's not a Jew, right? Um, if you've heard the prophets, you know, you know that the promise is not just for the Jews. But the Jews have closed their ears to that, right? They, they suppose that it's just for them. That they since they're children of Abraham, they have the promise, um, there's another story. I think I'm going to save it for next week because I want to talk about it a little bit more length. Do you have any questions? Is this all making sense? Okay. Not next week. Two weeks, I mean. Um, okay. One last thing. One last thing for you to consider, and that is um, this story of Jacob wrestling with, with God. What are the ways, what are the, the common themes that we've seen uh, that we see between this story and Jacob's life as a whole altogether? What, uh, what, what sort of is recapitulated in this story from Jacob's life so far? Can you think of... Here, here's an example of what I mean. So it takes place in darkness at night, and there's this confusion of identity, just like, right, with uh, Isaac blessing Jacob rather than Esau and Jacob marrying Lee rather than Rachel. What other, what other themes are there? Can you see? Right. Yeah. His, determ- his determination to get the blessing is. I mean, that is. Uh, that's thematic for Jacob throughout his throughout his whole life so far. Right. Um, how about so? There's this interesting play on words. You can't see. It, you, you see it a bit um, in uh, in your English text. Right. It, this episode takes place at the ford of the Jabbok, which sounds like Jacob reversed. Right. The, in fact, it's the same consonants in Hebrew, just flip flopped. And then uh, the word for wrestle. Um, sounds like Jacob. It's it's from it's the word that that Jacob comes from, um, and so this wrestling, this striving, which here takes place at the river, um, the the Jabbok River, um, is is thematic for Jacob's life that he's always striving against somebody, right? And here again, it culminates in his wrestle with his wrestle with God. Okay, we're gonna so so remember this for in two weeks we will come back and uh, I have one more story to tell you. Okay.